And I'd like to invite the rest of you to open your copy of God's indestructible word to the book of Exodus, chapter 33. And uh, we'll be uh, covering the, the really almost the last third of the book of Exodus this morning uh, as we look at uh, the tabernacle this morning. So if you're using one of the Bibles we provided for you, that'll be page 73 uh, to get us started. So uh, one of the greatest lessons that I have learned as a church planter over the past almost four years now, we moved to Boston in June of 2010, uh, started our first Sunday services in April of 2011. Uh, So this has been just an unbelievable journey that God has brought us on uh, to bring the good news of Jesus to this city and surrounding cities here uh, of Medford. So, uh, but one of the greatest lessons that I've learned is the absolute necessity and incredible power of prayer. So it's in prayer that we have all of the resources of God available to us. It's in prayer that we depend on God and the strength that he provides. It's through prayer that we seek God's will for our lives and the life of our church. So that is why when it comes to opening God's word, I love to find the prayers of the Bible. And I especially love to read prayers that are bold and full of faith. And so we're going to come to one such prayer this morning in Exodus 33. Now, over the past couple of weeks, we have seen God heard the cries of his people in slavery in Egypt. So with a strong and mighty arm, he redeemed them out of slavery, brought them out of Egypt through the plagues, crossed the Red Sea into this journey in the wilderness where they will ultimately uh, lead them to the promised land. And we saw that even though God worked this awesome victory for them, that, that they were at first filled with gratitude, but then that gratitude quickly turned to grumbling against God. Hey, God, we're hungry. When are you going to provide something for us to eat? Maybe a little water would be nice. And so they start to grumble against God. And God, rather than uh, turning his back on them, graciously provided manna in the wilderness. He graciously provided water for them to drink. He met their needs in his grace. But the journey of the Israelites, as we'll see from beginning to the end, and we can identify with this, can't we, is is there are many ups and downs in their journey. And we find that to be the case in the latter part of Exodus as well. It's in Exodus 32 that Moses comes down from the mountain, meeting with God in the presence of God, hearing his will for them, the revelation of the law, what we're going to see this morning, the, 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 the command to build this tabernacle. And so as he's coming down the mountain expecting to greet a people that are hungry to hear from God, what has God said, Moses? What does he find in Exodus 32? The people have constructed a golden calf. They have mixed the the worship of God with the worship of a worthless idol. And by the way, when you do that, that's no worship at all. And so you might imagine that Moses is just a little bit upset, a little bit frustrated, a little bit angry with Aaron and the people at the bottom of the mountain, but his anger does not match the anger of God. 
And so it's the, at the beginning of Exodus 33 that God says to Moses, hey, Moses, you know what, man, we are dealing with, as the Bible says many times, God says many times, a stiff-necked people. They're callous. They're hard-hearted. They're, they're about going their own way. So since these people are so stiff-necked, why don't you just deal with them? You can take them into the promised land. Hey, I'm checking out. And so Moses, in desperation, representing the people, the leader of the people, he comes back to God. And it's in verse 12 that we find this prayer of intercession before God. And make no mistake, it is a very bold prayer. So what does Moses say, starting in verse 12 of Exodus 33? Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. So Moses is reminding God in a very bold way, hey, God, what are we going to do? If, if you're not going with us, uh, how will people know that we're distinct, that we belong to you if you're not going with us? And so God then answers Moses in verse 14, and he says, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. So here it is again, God in his grace chooses to Go with the people when they certainly did not deserve it. But don't miss verse 15. Because what does Moses say in verse 15? Moses says back to God, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Do you see the, the boldness in Moses' request before God? Do you see the sense of desperation that he's carrying to say, God, if you were not in this endeavor, then I'd rather not move. If you're not going, I'm not going. And I want to just like, we could just kind of camp out here for the whole, this is the intro, by the way, but we could just kind of camp out here, stay here the whole sermon, leave with this one thought and be on our merry way. Because if we take this prayer and properly apply it to our lives, I know, I don't think, I know it has transformational power, right? I mean, if in every endeavor we said, God, if, if you're not in this thing with me, then, then I'm not going. This church, God, if, if you're not going to go with us, if you're not going to journey with us, if your presence is not with us, then, then we're, not, we're not moving an inch. In your workplace, in your studies, in your marriages, in your trials and sufferings that you're going through, what if you said to God, God, I'm not moving a muscle unless your presence is with me to, to strengthen me, to guide me, to, to show the world that I belong to you and you belong to me and you are blessing this journey. What a bold prayer from Moses that we find here. But the great news that we see in this request is that God delights to dwell with his people. God delights to dwell with his people. And so as we think about how God wants to be with us as his people, that should then move us to worship 
our great God. This morning, we're going to, to look at the true and greater presence of God in our lives. And I want to go ahead and invite you to back up to chapter 25, because we're going to see that, that God committed his presence to the people through the construction of the tabernacle beginning in chapter 25. And he's committing his presence through the, through the building of the tabernacle. He's committing his presence to be with his people. Now, if you, if you read through the book of, of, of Exodus, you're going to note that the, the last majority of the book, more than a fourth of the book, is dealing with the tabernacle. There's a lot of details there. In fact, maybe in your yearly Bible reading, if you do that uh, kind of thing, you're kind of tempted to skip over these details. But let me just say, a good Jew would never have skipped over these details because these are precious details to them. And I think you'll gather why that is as we study this morning. But the first truth I want you to see is that the tabernacle provided a dwelling place for God among his people. Let's read the first nine verses together. Verse one, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they may take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them, gold, silver and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram's skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for the setting, for the ephod and for the breastplate. And let them make a sanctuary for me that I may dwell in their midst." Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. So what do we learn from these verses about the tabernacle that will help us understand the meaning and significance for the people and consequently what we can gather from it as well? I want to give you four uh, observations that I see here about the tabernacle, okay? Number one, the tabernacle mediated God's presence to his people. All right, verse eight is the key verse. Look back at verse eight. It says, and let them, God's commanding, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. So God, in a very special way, is going to manifest his presence there in the tabernacle. Now, this tabernacle, if as we continue to read, we know that the, the people were on a journey, right? The people were, were moving to the promised land. They were dwelling in tents. And so God was going to be on the move with them. And so he would also manifest his presence, make his home, his dwelling in a tent that they would build. The tabernacle was a rather large tent that the people were to construct for this dwelling place for God. And in ancient times, this was not an unheard of practice, okay? Uh, some, some other ancient peoples, when they would travel from land to land, they would set up camp in this way with each of the tribes around the perimeter of the camp. But there would be a focal point. All of the surrounding tribes focused in on the center. And who was in the center? The king the king would be positioned in the center. And so God is going to say, construct the tabernacle, place the tabernacle in the middle of the camp because I am your king. 
God has always been the king of his people. That's why when we get to 1 Samuel, they're clamoring for, for a king because they had rejected God as their king. They wanted a king, and God gave them Saul, and that didn't turn out too good. We know that God is king. He made everything, including us. He made us for himself, and we are to live under his righteous and good reign. You'll remember Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the king. When he was crucified, they placed a placard over his head that said, Hail, King of the Jews. When he comes back, his robe will say, Lord of lords and King of kings. And so God is the king of his people. And this tabernacle was to be positioned in the middle of the camp to show that God is, in fact, their king. And what I love about this, God's desire to dwell with his people, this is how it's always been, right? I mean, a lot of what we see in the tabernacle, it's actually looking back to the Garden of Eden where God dwelled with Adam and Eve in perfect relationship and harmony and they were in perfect worship of their creator, God. And then as we'll see, it's also pointing us forward to a new day, to a new uh, presence that we will experience. And so just as God covenanted with Abraham, I will be with you, I will be with you, I will be with you. Now God is is giving an opportunity for the people to experience his presence in a special way through the building of the tabernacle. Now some of you astute theological scholars out there are saying, okay, well, isn't God like omnipresent? Okay, big word to mean, isn't God present everywhere? And to that, we would say absolutely yes. Okay, so, so the building of the tabernacle didn't mean that like God showed up and that's the only place where God was and he was just dwelling there in that spot. Okay, God is omnipresent. He is everywhere present, but God manifested his presence in a special way when the people would come and gather and worship in the tabernacle. So even as Solomon prayed in 1 Kings 8, this prayer of dedication for the temple, we'll talk about the temple in a bit, he says this in Chapter 8, verse 27. But will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house I have built. And so the people of Israel and Moses, they could have said the same thing. Hey, we're building this little tent here, and it's to be a holy tent. It's to be a very uh, uh, a purposeful tent, but it's not as if this is God's home, and this is the only place where God is. God is The highest heavens cannot contain the presence of God. So the tabernacle was was designed to mediate the presence of God to his people. And then we also noticed that the tabernacle was built with precious materials, okay? And these materials were provided at the cost of the people of Israel, right? We saw that in these opening verses. So that, that helps us understand there was a cost on their end, Right? The, the, the people gathered their own material together. These, these were costly items. You saw the list, gold, silver, bronze, onyx, stones, fine linen. They were to bring all of these as an offering that the construction of the, temp, the tabernacle might be accomplished. And I love what verse two says. Look back at it. It says that, that every man should bring a contribution whose heart moves him. We see this emphasized again in chapter 35. If you want to flip over real quick in verse 20, God says there, or Moses writes, then all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of the Lord and they came and everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him 
and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting. And so what a great principle for our worship. When we, when we come to God, we are to bring our offering to him from the heart. God because of who he is and what he's concerned with, he looks past all of the periphery, all of the external, and he peers right into our very souls. So, so, so just know that's even going on like right now. God sees through every, like, you might look really good. You know how this works? You're like really good on the outside, man. Got it all together, came in. You know, no one really knows what's going on with us, but God does. And so what he wants is a heart that is given to him, saying, God, work with me here. I'm not perfect, but I need your grace. Change me. Use me for your glory. And so the, the offering the people brought was an offering from the heart. And the costly nature of the stones re reflected the excellencies and worth of God. Everything that was going on in the tabernacle was to reflect the nature and character of God. So that's why even interestingly, in Exodus 31, we would see that it was the Spirit of God that filled the very craftsmen and artists that were going to design all of the pieces and, and, and curtains and, 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 and structure of the tabernacle. This was a very important work because it was to be the dwelling place of the great and powerful God. So that brings us to our third observation about the tabernacle. The tabernacle was designed to communicate God's holiness. The Israelites were to take very great care, be very detailed in how they brought these materials together and constructed the tabernacle for the Lord. We see this in verse 9. He says, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. Everything that's happening here was to communicate the holiness of God. And this is true because everywhere where God manifests his presence, he is necessarily carrying his holiness. We can just think about the book of Exodus. When God speaks to Moses in the burning bush, what does he tell Moses? Take off your sandals. Why? Because you're standing on holy ground. And the ground was not holy because Moses was holy. The, the ground was holy because the presence of the Lord was there speaking through the angel of the Lord. When God spoke to, to Moses on Mount Sinai, there was a cloud of smoke and fire, right? Because that was depicting the holiness of God. And then we see this even in Exodus 33 when, when Moses requests, show me your glory. God says, I'm only going to pass by and you'll be able to see just the backside of my passing, the backside of my glory because no one can be in the presence of God in the full presence of a glorious and holy God and survive and live. This is how holy our great God is. And so the same principle then applied to the construction of the tabernacle. There were three main sections of the tabernacle. There was the outer court, and in the outer court, uh, you had the, the laver, the bronze basin. It was a large bowl used for ceremonial cleansing, and this is all detailed in these latter chapters of Exodus. You had the altar of sacrifice, 
And the materials on the outer court were made with wood and and bronze. They were the cheaper materials. And why is that? Because as you move into the holy place, then you had uh, more costly materials. You had the golden lampstand, the altar of incense, symbolizing the the prayers of the people rising to God, the table of the showbread, representing God's provision for his people. And only the priest could go into the holy place. The common people could not enter into the holy place, into the tabernacle. But then it doesn't stop there. The third section is called the most holy place. And it wasn't just any priest who could go into the most holy place. There was one priest, the great high priest, who could enter into the most holy place. And how many times did the great high priest go into the most holy place? Once a year to offer a sacrifice on behalf of the people. We'll see it next week, Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. To offer a sacrifice on behalf of the people. And believe me, when he went in, he had to go through ceremonial cleansings down to the detail. And he would take the blood of the sacrifice and he would throw it on the only piece of furniture in the Holy of Holies called the Ark of the Covenant. And this ark represented, symbolized the very presence of God meeting with his people. And so why did he take the blood of the sacrifice and throw it on the ark, throw it on what is known as the mercy seat? Because this this mercy seat represented the judgment of God. And there has to be a, a price paid for our sin. And so the sacrifice of, of blood, of bulls and goats, it was, it was to represent that there needs to be a payment for our sins. So the great high priest would go and throw it on the Ark of the Covenant. But as it was falling, as I shared, it's falling on the mercy seat. God is a merciful God. So all of this is, of course, foreshadowing the cross of Christ where he would shed his blood, as Joel read for us. He is the true and better sacrifice. It's his mercy that is available to us that if we would look to him in faith, our sin can be forgiven and we can receive the mercy of God. So everything in the tabernacle, the outer courts, the, most, the holy place, the most holy place, the holy of holies, it was all designed specifically to point to the holiness of God. And then fourthly, the tabernacle was the hub of worship. So this is where a sinful people would meet with this holy God. Exodus 29, turn there with me, starting in verse 42, highlights some of the the purposes that God had in the the construction of the tabernacle. And we see the, the elements of worship that are happening here. Starting in verse 42, it says, It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak to you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. So did you see that? He says, I will meet with you there. I will speak to you there. 
this place will be sanctified, and it will be sanctified how? By my glory. This is the place where God would dwell and meet with his people. And so let's not overlook. Okay, there's a very general truth going on here that we need not miss. Our God is a personal God. He delights to know us. He wants us to know him. So God is not hiding, okay? He's not, he's not trying to, to remove himself from people. He wants to be known by people. And so let me ask you, if you know the God who made the world and everything in it, what more do you need? I mean, for the Christian who really lives in the presence of God with this knowledge of God, I mean, is there any place for like name dropping and, you know, like, oh, I know that person. They follow me on Twitter. My mom's aunt's cousin, you know, knows this, you know, star player, musician. Like, what is that? Who gives a rip, Right? We know the God of the universe. He has made himself known to us. He wants us to know him, that we might worship him and find all of our fulfillment and satisfaction in him. So we shouldn't miss how what we read here in Exodus 29 is connected immediately to what we discussed about the holiness of God. The worship of the people was to be a holy worship because God is a holy God. And this should be true for us as well. When we come to gather in worship on Sundays, it should be an expression of what is already happening throughout the week as we're worshiping God 24-7. So that, man, yes, when we come, we have sin in our life. We, we pray, we confess, we ask God to forgive us of our sin that we might be pure, cleansed, a holy people in worship to our great God. So I hope, I hope these truths amaze you, that God delights to dwell with his people. And what we see from Exodus moving forward through the Pentateuch, through the historical books, as we mentioned a minute ago, is that the temporal presence of God in the tabernacle, that they would uproot the tent and then move it on to another place, the temporal presence becomes the more permanent presence in the temple that David desired to build that God and allowed his son Solomon to build in Jerusalem. But it doesn't stop there. Not only does God's temporal presence become his, his, his permanent presence in, in, in the temple in terms of location, but when Jesus comes, he brings the very presence of God, fully man and yet fully God to us. Not in the temple made with hands, but in the temple of his body. So John, when he writes his introduction to his gospel, what does he say? He says, and the word became flesh. The, the eternal son of God, the eternal word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. God lived with man in the person of Jesus Christ. And so the, the Greek word here for dwelt, it, it, it could be translated out uh, more literally, he pinched his tent, he tabernacled among us. And this should, once again, amaze us that God would have this kind of humility, this kind of desire to pursue us. Every other religion in the world says work, says work your way to me, earn it. And God says, no, I am going to come down to you. I'm going to understand what it means to, to live life 
like you live it. Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, yet he was without sin. Jesus was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He suffered, obviously, in our place. He knew what it was like for us. And so in Christianity, yes, we hail the deity of Christ as God, but we also hail the humanity of Christ, that God is fully, that Jesus is fully God and fully man. And this is good news for us, that God has chosen to, to, to dwell with us, Emmanuel, God is with us in the person of Christ. And so then we ask, okay, if this is the progression, then what happens when Jesus ascends to the Father and he's no longer here on earth? How does God dwell with his people today? And that brings us to our second truth this morning. God dwells with his people today by the Spirit of Christ. One of the primary images for the church in the New Testament is that the church is the temple of God, the dwelling place of God now. So so Jesus, before he ascends to the Father in John 14, what does he tell his disciples? Starting in verse 15, he says this, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he what? He dwells with you and will be in you. I mean, are you tracking with Jesus here? You hear what he's saying? He's saying he's going to send another helper, the comforter, the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit of God will not only be with you, dwell with you, but he will be in you. In the Psalms, we have these like little words that are called selah. You know, like it just means pause, think about that, reflect. Okay, so we need to selah, pause, think about that. The Spirit of God lives in us. So what happens when someone comes to Christ? Okay, I was talking to someone this week who said, man, I see that I'm lost. I see that I need Christ. I want to follow him. And so when someone chooses to follow Christ, what great news, by the way, huh? Praise God. So when someone decides to follow Jesus, like hopefully you have, then what happens is the Spirit makes that person new, giving them life causing them to place their faith and trust in Christ, turning from their old life, and now the spirit of the living God now dwells in them. The spirit adopts us. The spirit seals us. He sanctifies and comforts us. The spirit of God encourages us. He guides us. He gifts us. He reminds us of God's truth. The spirit goes with us because the spirit is in us. So this is amazing truth. If Christ is, is, if you are in Christ, then Christ is in you. You got that? If you're in Christ, Christ is in you by his spirit, which is called in Romans 8, the spirit of Christ. So I love to tell people this. This is mind-boggling, okay? God is closer. If you are in Christ, if the spirit has made you new, just marinate on this for, for the next 50 years, okay? God is that's right. God is closer than your very fingertips. God is closer than your next heartbeat beat. He's in you. The Spirit of God dwells in his people. 
And so if, if this is true, if, if the Spirit has made us new and, and now dwells in us as this new temple of God, then what does this mean for us? I want to give you two truths, okay? And this is coming out of the, the tabernacle through redemptive history into now the church, the new uh, temple of God. Just as God's people gathered at the tabernacle and temple to worship God, so we who are filled with God's spirit should be a worshiping people, all right? We who belong to the, to the spirit and the spirit dwells in us, we are then a worshiping people. So we gather to worship on Sundays But as we talked about, we go out from worship and we continue worshiping until we come back to worship again. You see that? I mean, if if you think that like like Christianity is just for like Sunday, 1030 to about 1155, okay, then you are like severely misinformed and hopefully I've just corrected that for you like right now, okay? So we worship at all times and we don't offer the blood of of God bulls and goats, we, we come by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, and the sacrifice that we now offer in the words of Hebrews 13 is the sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. So as we pray and as we sing and as these crazy dudes preach on Sundays about Jesus, the, the living water and the bread of life and the one who is satisfies, who's with us, um, all of this is worship to God, but but. Our entire lives are to be in the worship of God. This is what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body, this is the only time that he's talking about the the spirit being in us as as an individual uh, temple. He refers to us as a temple. He says, uh, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? And so then what is Paul's conclusion? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Everything. I mean, think about the practicalities. John preached a sermon like two years ago, Romans 12. It was so helpful for me because it's like this is, our bodies are, are like real, real things. Okay, so my eyes, whatever my eyes see, it should be worship to the living God. Whatever my hands do, And we can do some pretty bad things with our hands, but our hands are given to God in worship. Wherever my feet go, they are to be worshiping. Everything about us from the outside in, the motives of our heart, what's happening on the inside, God wants all of our life to be in worship to him, to glorify him. And so that's where a couple of verses in the New Testament really, really strike me as, as, as weighty and significant and, and hard even. Because Ephesians 4.30 says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed. So we can grieve the Spirit when we rebel against God, when we sin against God, when we go our own way and don't keep Christ's commands, then we actually grieve the Holy Spirit. And when we grieve the Spirit, we should be grieved. And we should come back to God with godly sorrow and repent and turn from that so that we might glorify God in our bodies. So do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed in redemption. But then also, 1 Thessalonians 5.19 says, don't quench the Spirit. 
Don't quench the Spirit's work. Don't, don't, don't uh, rebel against God in such a way that we would stifle in any way the work of the Spirit in our lives. So this is what Paul would positively say conversely in Ephesians 5.18. I know I'm giving you a lot of scripture. So I hope you write them down. 5.18, be filled with the Spirit. Literally, it says, be being filled with the Spirit. It's a continuous action. It's an imperative that we are to always be seeking the filling of the Holy Spirit in our life. Yes, we have the presence of the Spirit completely, but at the same time, the work of the Spirit, the filling of the Spirit is something that we need on a daily basis. And so it's the Spirit, by the Spirit, that we worship because the Spirit now dwells in us as the people of God, a temple for Him. But then not only should we be a worshiping people, we should also be a relational people. And we see this particularly in Ephesians 2. The Spirit brings us into a relationship with God and into a relationship with one another. So starting in verse 18, Paul writes in chapter 2, this is such a good chapter, I wish we could read the whole stinking thing, but we can't right now. But he says in verse 18, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into what? A holy temple. A holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So the Spirit brings the people of God together into one beautiful building known as the temple of the Holy Spirit. And there are many ramifications here. I'm just going to give you a couple of them. Number one, let's think about this. We, as each person, Peter would say, are a living stone in this temple. Okay, so when the Spirit of God enters into a person, we're born again, and we become part of this temple and, and we are built on, number one, Christ Jesus, the chief cornerstone, without which there would be no building at all, no temple at all. But then as we're built up, as people come together, this is a beautiful temple that's being constructed. So what happens when one of the stones is not healthy, maybe gets a little crack in it, maybe gets a little dirty? What happens then is that the temple becomes perhaps not as beautiful, not as strong, or perhaps even potentially destructive to the larger temple structure. And so this is an incentive for us to commit ourselves to God and to commit ourselves to one another, that we would be beautiful stones in God's temple as he's building his people, the church. Okay, you tracking with me? You got me there? Everybody good? All right. So, so then not only that, but these stones are what? Verse 22, being built together. So, so, so whether you like it or not, I think you like it, all right? But, but whether you like it or not, God is building a people, okay? He's not building a person. And it's like, this person's over here. They got the Christian life going on. They're cool, isolated, checking out. Okay, that's like, that's not how God made his people, okay? He made us to be built together. And so if we read all of Ephesians 2, and let me give you a quick summary, 
It was Jews and Gentiles coming together, a people that did not like each other very much traditionally are now coming together because Christ through the cross has broken down the wall of hostility and he has made these two people one person. So my man Washi over here from, from Nevis, if my man's in Christ and I'm in Christ, then, then we're one. Zoli from South Africa. We don't have the same color skin, you know what I'm saying? I don't have those cool, you know, dreads in my hair. Washi, Zoli, woo. We got we to get all going on there. But, but we're, we're one. I can say that, Zoli, like that. We're one in Christ. My people from Kentucky serving. I'm from Kentucky. Some of you from all over the world. Some of you from, we're one in Christ. This is what God does. He brings people together to be his church. And think about this, okay? Don't just like, yeah, that was funny, cool, whatever, I got that. But no, 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 think about this. So now the most important thing about us is our identity in Christ, It doesn't matter that I'm Tanner, I'm a pastor, I live in Medford, I've got a family that's kind of, you know, like, the most important thing about me is Christ. So if I have Christ, and you have Christ, and we're together in Christ, then to be quite honest, nothing else really matters. We can love one another, we can serve one another, we can be together, we can pray for one another, we can bear one another's burdens, we can forgive one another when life gets a little messy. All of this God does by his spirit. The spirit gives us fellowship. And so it's amazing that God has promised his presence to his people. He has given the spirit to every person who believes. He's building us up into a holy temple. And what happens as we move from the garden and the presence of God to the fall in sin and the presence of God being removed from Adam and Eve to then the covenant promises to Abraham, the tabernacle, the temple, Christ, Emmanuel, God with us, God dwelling in the temple, is that one day we're moving to the new creation. And Revelation 21 says what? I looked and behold, there was no temple in the city because God, the Almighty, and the Lamb were its temple. And there was no need for the sun because the glory of God gave it light. So one day, if you are in Christ, you will dwell with God forever, perfectly in his presence, enjoying him forever. So let me ask you, Christian, what do you have to fear? How could you not be encouraged that God has committed himself in such a way to dwell in you? Is there anything, is there any trial or suffering that you might face in this life that God is not saying, I am with you, fear not, I am with you, Isaiah 43? Absolutely not. Is there any moment of loneliness? And I don't care if you have a million friends, we all battle loneliness at times. The Apostle Paul, he was a pretty important dude. He had a lot of people around him. In 2 Timothy, at the end of his life, when he's in prison again, he says, at first, no one stood with me. No one came to my defense, but the Lord stood with me and gave me strength. It's amazing truth. And oh, by the way, we've been talking a little bit about the Great Commission 
that we are to not only be with Christ and worship him together, but when Jesus called people to be his disciples, Mark 3 says that he called them to be with him and that he might send them out to proclaim the good news and heal the sick. So, so what's happening is the twofold kind of purpose of a disciple is to be with Jesus and to be on mission for Jesus. So what does Jesus say in the Great Commission? All authority, there's confidence for you, by the way. That's another sermon. I wish, yeah. Uh, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples, proclaim the good news, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded, and what? I'm with you. I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. So friends, God is with us. He has committed himself to us. He will never leave us nor forsake us. And that should comfort us. That should encourage us. That should fill us with magnificent hope. And that should send us out to proclaim his good news. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that we would have a heavy dose of your truth in our hearts. And that we would take this truth and we wouldn't just think about it for 45 minutes, but Lord, that we would love it in such a way that it transforms us this afternoon and tonight and tomorrow and next week and the year after that. God, we pray that that we would be a people so marked by the spirit that dwells in us that people would want to know who Jesus is, that we could proclaim and tell of him and his good news. And so, Lord, I pray for any person that that needs the Spirit to make them new, that's saying, I want to follow Christ. Lord, I pray that they would cry out to you right now, confess their sin, and turn to Christ, place their faith in his blood that was shed for them on the cross. I pray they would do it right now. And Father, I pray that for all of us who know you, Lord, that we would be a people so filled with your Spirit, that Medford would take notice. Our workplaces would see it. Our neighborhoods would be different because the spirit of the living Christ, the resurrected Jesus of Nazareth, now dwells in us. Father, would you do an amazing work in us for your glory, we pray. Amen.